All right, well, if you have your copy of God's Word before you, turn to Micah. We'll look at the entirety of chapter 2 this morning. Micah chapter 2. This is God's Word. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster." In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast a line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father, we are are thankful um, that we get to uh, have this freedom of opening your word. God, that we have this freedom to to gather, uh, even in the midst of everything else going on in our world. God, help us to to always be thankful for that. Help us to always be thankful that we have your word, even when your word uh, is hard to hear, that we would still be thankful because it is your word that we are hearing. And so God, open our ears uh, so that we might behold wonderful and magnificent things from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we began a new series uh, in the book of Micah last week. Uh, And what we learned last week in Micah is that it's a hard book. It doesn't seem like the right book to be walking through during the season of Advent, when it seems like it should always be joyful and full of happiness. And especially not a book that we should be looking at at the end of a year that we've had in 2020. It's been a hard year. We've seen a lot of suffering, and we continue to see that happen. 
But I would argue that it's the perfect book for Advent. I would argue that it's the right word for this hard, long year that we had. Because it's a book that reminds us of what our God is like. And this is what Micah wants us to see. That even in the face of judgment, even in the face of of suffering, even in the face of, of exile, and even in the face of our own sin, there is hope that we read about already in our Advent reading. So we'll see this today in the three movements of our text that can be found in your worship guide. One is the real sin in verses 1 through 5. Two is the false comfort in verses 6 through 11. And then three is our future hope in verses 12 through 13. So the real sin the false comfort, and the future hope. So first, the real sin. Here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, we discover the sin that Micah mentioned, uh, uh, talked about back in chapter 1, verse 5. Now, he was, he was kind of uh, throwing out a blanket statement there, but, but the sin that Micah mentions is no longer this abstract reality to God's people. It's no longer this kind of blanket sin that everybody can kind of nod and agree and say, yes, we, we probably all sin in, in such and such a way. But Micah is now becoming more concrete. Micah now is, is, is focusing in on what we could call is uh, God's people's fallen condition focus during this time. So in verse 2, Micah lays out three sins for them. One is the primary sin, and the other two are secondary. And those sins are this. Covetousness, theft, and oppression. Now, covetousness uh, obviously being the primary, but the other two are birthed out of the first. So so we could say that without covetousness, we don't have theft and oppression. So coveting is the sin in which we want to focus in on and the sin in which Micah is focusing in on. Now, coveting is a a sin that we have pretty well normalized in American culture. It's mainstream. Uh, You don't hear many uh, uh, sermons on the sin of coveting because it hits at the heart pretty quickly. To want something someone else has, we call good advertising. That's the goal. To covet is essentially you doing you, what we like to say, right? If it makes you happy, do it. Even if it's at the expense of other people. But the Bible's definition of coveting is quite different. It's the tenth of the ten commands that says you shall not covet but it's not a commandment we like to quote often do we i know i've heard people say when they're trying to justify uh their behavior a lot of times even if they're if they're more secular and they're not even a christian they'll throw up the ten commandments as as kind of this checklist and they'll kind of rattle off the first few commandments to say look i'm a pretty good person i've never killed anybody check i've never cheated on my spouse check And that's typically where it ends. 
we don't quite make it to the, the bottom of the list, in, 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 in especially uh, the, the 10th commandment that says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And you can replace ox and donkey with cars and toys and things like that. You shall not covet any of these things. The New City Catechism that we walked through already this year, question 12 deals with the 10th command. It actually deals with the 9th and the 10th command, but, but this is what it says. The question is, what does God require in the 10th commandment? What does he require? That we are content. Not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us. So what the 10th commandment reveals is that coveting is a matter of the heart. Because the sin of coveting is basically a dissatisfaction with God. And I would say, we all fall to this particular sin. I did this morning and didn't even realize it until silent confession. We see it in verse 1. The reason why God's people are dissatisfied with God is because they're perfectly satisfied with themselves. Specifically, they're satisfied with the power that they believe that they hold over the rest of God's people. Verse 1 reads, Because it is in the power of their hand, they can do all of these evil deeds. They can plan these evil deeds on their beds at night, and in the broad daylight, boldly, they can sin against God's people. Because it's in the power of their hands to do so. So instead of being satisfied and content in what God has done for them, if you remember the scripture reading that I read earlier, God has given them everything they need. He has destroyed their enemies. He has cleared out the land for them, and he has given it to them freely. They don't deserve it. Well, instead of being satisfied in what God has done for them, they trust in themselves. They trust in their power. I wonder if any of you are dissatisfied with God today. And if you are, have you ever thought that the reason for your dissatisfaction is not because someone else has wronged you or not because uh, of, of anything that this outside world is kind of throwing at us at this particular time, but that your dissatisfaction is because you are trusting too much in yourself. That you are looking at your own power to help you survive in this broken world. That's where I would start. James 4.1 asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You're struggling with this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You think automatically, well, it's the other person. They've wronged me. They're, they're starting this argument with me. They've, they've done this, that, or the other to make me angry and to make, you, make me upset. But this is what James says. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
So essentially what James is saying there is what causes fights and quarrels among you is what is happening in your heart. So I think a lot of times we, um, as, if you're a parent, you understand this, that you want to be protective of your children and you want to keep bad things out of your children's life so you limit certain things like social media and phones and the, the friends that they hang out with. But oftentimes when we do that, and we do that with ourselves as well, we're, we're, we all do that, but oftentimes we forget that the most dangerous aspect of, of ourselves is actually our own heart. The Bible says that your heart is desperately wicked. That your heart is constantly trying to lead you astray, to pull you away from God at times. And we often ignore that. So oftentimes we, we rely on our own power to get us through a difficulty maybe in our marriage or in parenting or trying to figure out the future. Well, before moving on to God's judgment in verses 3 through 5, we have to notice, that kind of goes along with what I'm saying here, that there is both a social and theological dimension to the crimes that are being committed by these Israelites, but also our own sin. So we have one, we have this social dimension that's spelled out for us um, through these uh, powerful and rich landlords amongst God's people who are stealing land from those unable to defend their lands or taking advantage of people. And this is clearly unethical and wrong. Anybody could look at this and say, that is wrong. They should not be doing that to those people, especially those people who are called sisters and brothers. They're part of the same family. So this is, all, this is a, all the, most of the time, this, this is an easier dimension to see in our life. We can, we can point our finger all day at the unethical and the wrong doings of our world and say, that is wrong. Because it's public, it's put on display, and, and, and we can see it very, very clearly. But something we must realize is that every act of disobedience, whether it is large or small, carries with it a theological dimension as well. Because our idea of God drives how we live our life. And, and that is true whether, whether you are a Christian or not. It drives how you live your life. Your, your life is wrapped up in who you believe God to be. So if you're one who believes God will never do you harm, no matter what, then you will live with reckless abandon for yourself. That's how you'll live your life. But if you fear God, and you understand him to be just and good, even when he disciplines you. You will seek to live a life that brings him glory. So, the theo so there's a social dimension there, but there's also this theological dimension uh, that the Israelites uh, have erred in. They, they erred in thinking that the land belonged to those who are rich and powerful. 
This is our land. We are, we are the rich and the powerful land lords. So there's this kind of survival of the fittest mentality that these uh, men had. And so they believe we're stronger. Therefore, we can take the land from the weaker and we deserve it. Instead of believing that it is land that belonged to God, who gave it to his covenant people. So in verses 3 through 5, the Lord hands down his judgment. And it's awful. In verse 3, God says, Because you have plotted evil against innocent victims concerning their property and person, now I will plot disaster against you with respect to your person and property. This is what we call poetic justice. The, the, the punishment fits the crime. God says, this is how you want to live your life. This is how you want to treat these particular people. God says to them, then this is exactly what I will give you as a punishment. And in verse 5, God drops the hammer by telling them that they will not participate in, in any future redistribution of the land. Now, you might look at that and go, man, that doesn't sound that bad. That doesn't really sound like, it doesn't really sound, it's not really striking at anything that I would be afraid of. But the reason why is because we don't live in an agrarian culture. We, not, not many of us, I don't think any of us in here have farms that we are relying on for our, um, for our livelihood, for our life. But in this culture, that was what the land was about. Land during this time equaled life for families. That's why this was such, uh, such, a, such an evil that these men were doing to these landowners. They were essentially taking life from their own people. And so this equaled life for families and for God's people in particular because it was a land given to them by God. It equaled the very basis of life with God himself. So to remove the land was to remove life. And that is exactly what God does. The wages of sin truly is death, Paul says in Romans 8.28. But what's worse than blindly walking in your sin is having someone tell you that you aren't blindly walking in your sin. Which is exactly what we see in our second movement in verses 6 through 11. We have false preachers offering false comfort. So I know we're probably all guilty of this, but when we have a strong opinion about something, we know that we are probably right um, it, or, or we have a certain lifestyle that we want to engage in, even though it might be wrong, um, but we're committed to it, we go looking for people or ideologies that agree with us and take our side. I know I've been guilty of that. And the more these people or ideologies know, the more well-known they are, the better, because it will back up what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And this is exactly what is happening in verses 6 through 11. In verse 6, we are meeting these false preachers. It kind of changes from Micah's words 
to these false preachers' words. So Micah is quoting what these false preachers are saying. And essentially what they're doing here in verse 6 is negating everything that Micah has said up to this point. They're saying to God's people, one shouldn't preach about such things as Micah is preaching about. These things will not happen to you. So you can just go on living the way that you want. Remember, we talked about this last week about avoiding negative feelings and emotions is to deny judgment because we don't think we're bad enough to be judged. And this is the message of these false preachers to God's people. You're not that bad. You're, you're actually okay. God says that you're okay. I mean, he is, he is a God who, who does good to those who walk uprightly. That's what his word says. But God's people are actually looking for false preachers to preach to them what they want to hear so that they can go about doing evil. We can fall prey to this in a couple of ways. Just as a quick um, application here. And, and the way in which we fall prey to this is, is one through people, and the other is through preaching. So let me just deal with this. People, I just want to say that you need to beware of those who never call you out on your sin. Meaning, if you're just hanging around people that are just kind of nodding and smiling at you and just kind of quietly letting you do whatever it is that you want to do, um, you need to beware of those people. You don't need a bunch of yes men and women in your life. Rather, you need to put yourself around people who aren't afraid of you, who aren't afraid to call you out when it's needed. Another thing is to, to know that as a sinner, you always bring something to the table. It doesn't matter if your argument is, is watertight. And now you could argue your opponent under the table. You always bring something to that argument, to that conflict, to that situation that, that where sin is involved. So we need to be quick to repent quick to admit our sin and wrongdoing. We have to be quick to remove the plank from our own eye before clawing out the speck in our brother or sister's eye, which is really easy to do. The second thing is preaching. Uh, Pastor John Stott says, I have, I have a few quotes in the front of my Bible that, uh, that are of some preachers who, uh, who I read and admire and have learned from, um, that have discipled me even from the grave. John Stott is one of them. But he says this about true biblical preaching. He says, a true biblical preaching allows the word of God to confront us, not something we like, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. True biblical preaching allows the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. That means sometimes when you're sitting in these chairs at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, you may get a little uncomfortable. I hope you do. 
You may, not, you may not actually like what comes out of the preacher's mouth every Sunday because it hits your heart in a certain way. And I would say if the preaching from this pulpit ceases to do those things consistently, leave. Just leave. Go find a place that will do those things consistently. Because if that's not happen, happening from this pulpit, I am no longer preaching the Bible in its fullness, but doing what Israel's false preachers are doing here in verse 7. Quoting Scripture and the promises of God, but leaving out the negative bits to appease the masses and to gather a crowd. Because that's what winds up. Because what winds up happening when we do this, and the reason I would say to leave and to leave quickly is that it begins to give people a low view of the God of the Bible. And when one has a low view of God, the gospel is destroyed. And that is certainly the trajectory that God's people are on in Micah chapter two. So much so that in verses 8 and 9, God himself tells his people that the way they are living their life is as if they are enemies of him. So it goes from Micah speaking to these false preachers' words to God himself kind of taking over the conversation and saying, look, the way in which you are living is as if you are my enemy." So in verse 10, God's judgment upon them is, arise and go. My family and I, we used to live in a, in a, in, and minister in a poor zip code in our city. And on average, I would say, it's kind of a guesstimation, but on average, I would say that we would see someone evicted from their home probably every couple of weeks. And the way that you knew someone was being evicted, if you've never seen this happen before, uh, is that all of their earthly possessions would be thrown out uh, on the side of the street for the trash to come and pick them up. Now, I know people, people make mistakes. Some of you, I know, are, you, you, rent, you rent homes, so you are landlords, so this isn't a strike against you at all. Uh, but, but I know that, that things happen. There's different situations, there's different stories that happen, so you can't pay your rent, or you can't do this, that, or the other. There's broken systems that increase rent to the point where people can't do that anymore, and so they just have all their stuff thrown out, and they're evicted. So either way, I know when this happened in our neighborhood, it was easy for me to have empathy, because I just knew the situation was broken. I knew that there was families that lived in that house, and I knew that they were just going to have to start over, and it was going to be the same situation six months to a year from then. It's easy to have empathy. And here's what is happening to God's people now. When God says, arise and go. But empathy is not what Micah wants you to feel for God's people here or to see. What Micah wants you to see is what God is like. Because God is saying to them, just as you evicted your countrymen from their land, I will evict you from the land I gave to you. 
And what this tells us about God is that God does not let sin and injustice linger forever. That He will step in and that He will deal with it justly. So before moving on to our final movement, we must see the final word that Micah has for these false preachers here and those who are attracted to them because it's very relevant to our day today. He goes back over in verse 11 what kind of preachers they are. Preachers who only say what the people want to hear. He calls their message a message of wind and lies. Essentially what he calls them, they're, they're a bunch of blowhards. All they're doing is just giving this empty message filled with lies. And yet the sad thing is, this type of preacher uh, is, the, is the type of preacher that God's people currently want. They don't want a Micah whose constant message is, who is like God? They don't want that. They don't want to have to answer that question because it forces them to evaluate their life and to repent of their sin. They're losing out on profits if they do that. No, they want a preacher just to tell them, everything's going to be okay. You can continue to live in your sinful and destructive lifestyle, being selfish towards um, other people, and everything will be okay. Unfortunately, the world is still populated with preachers like this, and their parking lots are People who continue to flock to messages of wind and lies. And people you know who go to places like this need to hear the gospel. They need to hear this message that God will not, God will not allow uh, sin to linger for very much longer. That judgment will be have because what these people are getting is a distorted portrait of God that is destroying the gospel for them. And so we must remind them, as Micah does in our final movement, that there is a future hope. That there is a hope that lies beyond Israel's judgment and even for those who have listened to wind and lies. The impending judgment is bearing down upon God's people. God will not relent. The city will fall. God's people will go into exile under a pagan king. And so you might be asking the question, as I was of the text this week, what happens to those who've been wronged? Aren't they, aren't they God's people? Haven't they, haven't they done the right thing? I mean, they're the ones that injustice has been in, invoked upon by these wicked men. What happens to them? What happens to those who are committed to pursue righteousness, even in the midst of a wicked world? Well, enter verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. 
their king, passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So what that is telling us is that God gives to them the future hope of a shepherd king. Look at the way he speaks to them in verse 12. And I was at the, the, the middle school, high school uh, Bible study last week, and they learned this in observation that when you see words repeated, that you should just go ahead and circle them. So circle, circle, circle. Because over and over again here in verse 12, he repeats, I will, I will, I will. And that's God speaking to his people. That's God speaking to those who are consistently pursuing righteousness. He says, I will assemble you. I will gather a remnant. I will set you together like sheep in a fold. I will do this. So what we have here is true comfort in a future hope available to all who trust in him. So what Micah does here is he, he points beyond the current judgment. He points beyond the exile that they are about to find themselves in to when Israel would return being led out by their shepherd king. And so verse 13 lets us know that this shepherd king is the one who makes a way for us to be led out of exile. He is the one who breaks the breach. Or we could say he is the one who tears the veil. He is the one who brings us back to God. He is the one who restores us as the people of God. He is the one who goes before his people in suffering and in death. It's a time we find ourselves in currently, isn't it? The Bible tells us that as Christians, we too are strangers and exiles in this world. That we live, as Augustine puts it in his book, The City of God, in two cities. We live in the city of this world, and at the exact same time, we are living in the city of God. And the Advent season frames for us this reality of the already and the not yet. By reminding us that the promised shepherd king, Jesus, came and the promised shepherd king will come again to lead us out of exile. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you that as we kind of have our sins um, through, through this book of judgment kind of piled upon us, um, that, we, we, that some of us, I'm sure, feel, feel the guilt um, more than most of us, um, God, and, and, and some of us are, are, are just now beginning to realize, man, I am, I am not as good as I think I am. God, help us to understand that that is the place where you bring us, that you bring us to this point of, of uh, that, that we can see that our own lives, that our own um, abilities, that our own works, that our own um, just kind of idea of who we think God is uh, doesn't work. And then you remind us of this hope that we have in our shepherd king that we can be reminded again because Christ has come. He's, he's come at, at, this, at, at Advent time, at Christmas 
time that we can we celebrate that this now that we can be reminded that as Christ has come as you have fulfilled this promise to your people that you will continue to fulfill this promise to your people now and that Christ will come again and that he will make all things new including us and we pray all of these things in his name amen Every Lord's Day, we celebrate the the Lord's Supper together so that, again, we are reminded of what our Shepherd King has done for us at the cross. We read about it today using a confession of sin to remind us that it was Christ whose body was broken. It was Christ who took on our our sin and our shame. It was Christ who suffered um, under God's uh, holy wrath so that we would not have to endure that. Our shepherd king goes before us. He constantly goes before us. And the communion table, table in a really simple way reminds us that that is exactly what God has done. That is exactly what God has fulfilled. And that it also reminds us that he will continue to fulfill those promises throughout our lives. So if you are a believer in Christ and you are, you are one who is in pursuit of righteousness, this is a table that has been set for you. Whether you're a member of Christ the King or not, you come and receive the Lord's Supper uh, today. Now, if you, are, if you are not, if you are visiting with us because you're someone who is curious about Christianity or you have questions about Christianity, uh, this time is for you as well. We, we have uh, prayers in, in our worship guide that are specifically geared towards you. We've thought about you in that regard. So while you won't take the Lord's Supper together, we would ask you to to use those prayers as a way in which to um, begin a conversation with God because He is the one, by His good providence, that has brought you here today. Take advantage of that. The night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. So this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying this is the new covenant Poured out in my blood, for as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Let me pray, and then when I'm done praying, you may uh, feel free to take communion as you are ready. God, thank you again for discipling us from your table, for reminding us uh, reminding us of the gospel, for reminding us uh, again of that great truth that it is, it is not about what we do or what we don't do, but about what Christ has done in his person and in his work. And we pray that in his name today. Amen.